thank you guys for letting me be here this morning. I came directly from a church at Missio uh, in North Seattle, and uh, everyone says hi, by the way, and we're just grateful that there are churches around that we get to um, kind of tangentially be uh, in relationship with, and, and you guys um, are gracious to let me be here, and um, I got to leave early without having to clean up the church up at Missio, so that was great. Um, as well, because we are a church in the box, meaning we set up every single week and we tear down every week. Um, so that was kind of nice to just be like, peace out, you guys figure it out, I'm heading down to uh, Federal Way. Um, well, so when Drew was asking if I would come back and teach while he was out of town, um, I was trying to figure out what I wanted to, to talk about, and I decided kind of really quickly that I wanted to share a, a bit of a series that our church, uh, Missio, has or had been in kind of earlier on this year uh, that we, we've called The Way of Jesus. Um, and so, actually, this teaching is, was the first uh, of eight uh, teachings that we did in that series um, back in January and February. And so um, this was one that kind of set the tone for us in our year of our theme. Our, our theme this year at Missio has been life with Jesus. And so we figured in order to figure out what life with Jesus looks like, we kind of need to know what the way of Jesus actually is. And so this is kind of the first uh, entry teaching into that series. And I wanted to share it with you because it was impactful for me, but it was also really impactful for our group as it set the tone for what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. And so that's where we're going to be at um, this morning. Um, this is uh, called The Way of Humility. All right, so we're all going to be very humble and hear this the way that Jesus would want us to hear it. But before we dig in, I just want to pray. Uh, I want to start like that. So let's pray. God, I just pray that you would speak um, to us this morning and that this these stories that we are going to look at this morning and, and really understanding the way of humility, that, that we would really understand how that really is almost a starting point for so much of living the way of Jesus in the world around us. And so I just pray, God, that you would speak very clearly um, and that we would have hearts to hear. And just thank you for, for who you are. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Uh, amen. amen. So again, this series that we have been doing, uh, one of the things that we tried to do was we wanted to take a very specific teaching of Jesus and, and look and unpack that teaching a little bit as a church, but then also go further into the life of Jesus and find some ways that Jesus himself actually lived out his own teachings. Because I think at times we can feel like, oh, Jesus is telling us to do all these things, but he doesn't know what it's like to live in 2022, you know, in the Northwest, right? And how, how is it that we are actually supposed to do these things? And so we wanted to look and be like, well, let's actually look and see what Jesus did to live out this thing that he was telling all of us to do. And so it's kind of the structure of the way each of these messages um, really functioned. But as we get started, I don't know if we did this last time, but at my church, I like to do question and answer sessions. So this is going to be some give and take here. I'm going to need your help, all right? That's permission to talk. So that I just want you guys to know that. All right. So when you guys think of the word humility, what and who comes to mind? 
Humility. Yeah. What, yeah, okay. Mother Teresa, sure. Yeah. A what? A gentle spirit. I thought you said a jealous bird at first. That was weird. Yeah, a gentle spirit. Yep. Yeah. What else? What do you guys think of when you think of humility? Kindness? Yeah, absolutely. Let me ask you this one. What does the word meek mean? <laughs> this is not a word I feel like we use very often, but Jesus at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount has those Beatitudes, right? And one of them, he says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so what on earth does meek mean? Someone give me a definition of it, huh? Someone said it. Humble. <laughs> it was, yeah, sorry. That was like an obvious like lean into the answer. Good job. What else? Yeah. First. Yeah, I love that. Someone who thinks of others first. Self-deprecating. Yeah. Quiet-natured. Yeah. So, yeah, meek. This idea of being meek definitely is, it's humble, it's gentle, it's kindness, it's all those kind of things wrapped into one word that we don't really use very often anymore. And so it kind of loses all of its power when we read it because we're going, well, Jesus, what does meek actually mean? Um, I want to ask another question. How do you guys think, um, or why do you think Jesus says that the meek shall inherit the earth? What on earth are we talking about? Yeah, okay, definitely. How, why, why does Jesus say that the meek are going to inherit? Do you want to pull that up? I think it's the first. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Why does Jesus say that? It seems weird. He said, because not everyone possess, or like, you say it again. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, that's a that's a great segue into my next point. So what? My next question. What's generally the way that we think of in our world, kind of a, from a worldly perspective, that people inherit the earth or, or kind of get the things that they want? <laughs> Huh? Wealth, yeah. Dynasty, power. Huh? Military power, yeah. War, battle, fighting, all those kinds of things, right? You take it by force, you take it through abuse, you take it through coercion. All those are kind of the ways that typically the world says, this is how you get the things that you're supposed to be getting, right? And I love this because Jesus is like, hang on a second, because there is a real truth that the world is completely missing and flipping upside down because actually it's the meek that inherit the earth. And so we're going to actually talk a lot about this. Um, my wife and I this week watched the movie Gladiator. You guys remember that movie, right? From like 2001. Uh, it was fantastic. Um, the emperor's son who basically feared losing all of his potential power decides to kill his own father, which apparently was normal in the Roman emperor kind of type world, um, which I'm sorry, if you guys have never seen Gladiator, I didn't mean to spoil it for you, but it's, it's like 20 years old or something like that. But um, 
I love this, though, because Jesus, in his most famous and comprehensive teaching, in two ways describes what would have sounded like the most absurd idea to people at that time, and I think honestly remains absurd today. Okay, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, which that seems odd to us, but poor in spirit essentially just was a term that was meaning that there was an understood need for God, right? And so he's saying, blessed are people who understand and admit that they need God, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It was an acknowledgement that life with Jesus begins with admitting that we need Jesus, right? Then he says, blessed are the meek for they're going to inherit the earth. And so twice, Jesus kind of makes this absurd and bold claim for the importance of the way of humility that leads to the kingdom of heaven and peace on earth, which I think is fascinating. And these are certainly big and bold claims that would have been challenging for people to really wrap their minds around at that time. And they're certainly, I think, difficult for us to wrap our minds around in our time today. And so Jesus then goes on to explain several more times throughout Matthew this idea of humility being the way of Jesus that leads to peace on earth, that leads to the very tangible expression of God's kingdom on earth. Because I think Jesus knew that as humans, we would always struggle with wanting and seeking greatness, even at times at the expense of the people around us. I want you guys to uh, either turn or you can look up on Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read this passage uh, together. This uh, is Matthew 18, 1 through 5. And it says, At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Right? See, they're already doing the thing. Come on, guys. He called a little child to them and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. Let's see, is that it? Yeah. So even after hearing Jesus teach several times on this kingdom value of humility, his own disciples wanted what every human has struggled to, to deal with, right? They struggle with. They wanted to know, hey, look, Jesus, in this new kingdom that you keep telling us that is being brought about by you, who is going to be the greatest in that kingdom? I mean, this is like the craziest thing about us human beings. We are almost always most curious about forging a sense of greatness for ourselves. Shakespeare said that some are born great. Some achieve greatness, and some have greatness thrust upon them, right? This has been around for forever, But this search for greatness is a part of what it means to be human, right? And so Jesus' disciples asked this question to Jesus, who is is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And and Jesus, though, he doesn't answer their question directly or, or the way that they would expect him to answer. He flips the expectation around and he begins to remind them of the way of humility. He has this child come on over to him and he says, look, you see this child. Unless you become like this child, you won't even need to worry about who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because you're not even going to be there. I mean, that's what Jesus said, right? So if you don't become like them, you're not even going to get into the kingdom of heaven. So let's tone down the question about who's the greatest, right? 
which I think feels kind of harsh, right? I mean, he says, if you don't change and become like this child, then you're not going to be in heaven anyways. You can't be because the kingdom of heaven is fundamentally about humility, gentleness, and peace. And peace, real peace, never happens at the tip of a sword and fighting for greatness. It comes with an acknowledgement that we are not the greatest. We are not the greatest. But the one who is the greatest has invited us into his kingdom. And accepting the invitation from the one who is the greatest takes an act of humility on our part. Right? He says, whoever humbles himself like this child, they are actually the greatest. Now, I have some kids. I have some kids, right? And I know this is the second time that I've been here and said I have kids and you've never actually seen them, so there's no proof that I actually do have those children. But I swear I have some children. Um, But what could Jesus possibly be saying regarding becoming like children to become the greatest? What is it about children that he is trying to get at in this moment? I think there is a dependence that kids have on their parents to survive, right? The kids need you to survive in order to thrive and to live well. They have to trust and rely on and be completely under the care and provision of their parents. And I love this analogy because all over the Gospels, Jesus sees the people in life who through coercion or force or abuse and manipulation and so much more seek to gain control of the world or at least their little portion of it. And he says that kind of forceful inheritance will always leave you empty-handed because it leads only to pain and suffering. It's always fascinating to me that when I watch movies about people who are like taking over a company or a country or some other thing like that through manipulation or war or fighting, have you ever noticed that those people then constantly live in fear of someone else doing the same exact thing to them? Like they're always looking over their shoulder going, who's the next guy to just knife me in the back and take the thing that I just forcefully took from the guy in front of me, right? And it's like kind of that reality of this constant having to to fight or defend or try and ward off people who are trying to take by force, right? The thing that he feels he took for himself. And then isn't it, isn't it interesting the way that people who have tried to take their portion of the earth And I think even at times, forcefully take their portion of God's kingdom are the quickest to point out that humility is a weakness rather than a strength. Did you catch that? Sometimes the people who who take the world by force are the first people to say that humility is a weakness, not a strength. Have you guys seen the... (laughs) I know I've talked a lot about movies. I don't know why. Have you guys seen the um, n- the newer movie Jumanji? Like the newer Jumanji movies with um, Dwayne Johnson and Kevin Hart? You guys haven't seen these movies? Oh my gosh, so fun. So good. Um, so there's this part of the first movie where they're in the video game and they discover that when they touch their chest, this little like screen pops up and it shows their strengths and their weaknesses and it's a fantastic scene because Dwayne Johnson's character like touches his chest and this thing comes up he's like got a list of like 14 strengths he has like no weaknesses and all this kind of stuff and then Kevin Hart's character touches his chest and it shows that his strength is like zoology and little weird things like that but then his weakness is strength 
And he's like looking around and he's like, how can strength be my weakness? He's like, it doesn't make any sense. And it's kind of this comical little thing to try and help people understand that this guy was like super, super weak (laughs) and he needed the help of his friends along the way. But in the kingdom of the king, this upside down kingdom, strength, like what we see in our world, manipulation, coercion, fighting force, and all those types of things, whatever it is, is actually a weakness. And weakness in the kingdom of God is actually our strength. Jesus himself says that very, very much, right? He, um, when Jesus answers Paul's plea to remove his thorn in the flesh, Jesus says to him in 2 Corinthians 12, 8, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. It wasn't as if Jesus was saying, look, I don't want you to become like strong in your life. Like don't lift weights or work out or anything like that. That's not what he was talking about. He's saying that our weakness is an opportunity for Jesus to show his desire to be with us in that weakness and provide the thing that we can't get on our own. The things that we just can't get on our own. To be the thing that we are missing in our own lives. It's Jesus longing to fill the gaps of your character with his presence so that together you and Jesus can become one, right? You become whole in Jesus. I mean, isn't that amazing that with Jesus, we are whole, we are made complete. But not only are we made complete, he says, Jesus says that his work is actually made complete then in us. In 1 John, Jesus says that when you love one another, then God lives in you and his love is made complete in you. Jesus has so intimately tied himself to humanity that his love is made complete when it is formed and living in us and then being extended through us to the world around us. I mean, and that's amazing to me. That's amazing to me. That Jesus has chosen that in order for his work to be made complete, he needs us to receive him with us. That's amazing. But he says none of that happens without humility. It's understanding and admitting that if we are made complete with Jesus, then it means that we are incomplete without him. That we're incomplete as people. You all know that, I'm sure you've heard this before, that babies will not live if they are not constantly with being held, touched by their parents. There's just kind of a medical truth to, like if, if babies are neglected, then they develop poorly and sometimes they don't actually live at all. It's because they need to be in the presence of their parents being held and touched by them in order for them to be, to, to develop the way that they're supposed to develop. And I love this imagery because it's exactly what Jesus is after when he says that the greatest among you is not who you think. The greatest is the person who fully realizes and accepts and admits that without Jesus, I am just simply an incomplete human being. It's not to say that you're a bad person without Jesus. You can be a bad person with or without Jesus, by the way. But what it is saying is that you are incomplete without Jesus. And so I long to be made complete with Jesus. You know, the way of humility is so hard, though, isn't it? 
None of us are like just wake up and we're like just naturally humble people, right? It's difficult at times. And yet Jesus doesn't tell us to be like little children knowing that none of us ever could be. Jesus didn't give us his teachings in the Sermon on the Mount and then just like throw his hands in the air and be like, well, I know you're not going to be able to do this and that you won't do this, so just you know, do as best you can, right? No, Jesus means what he says and he wants us to live the way of Jesus in the world around us. But he also knew that we would need examples to help us understand what all of that looks like. And so Jesus goes a little bit deeper than his teaching and he begins to show the people around him in action what the way of humility looks like. And so turn, we're going to look at Mark chapter 10 and we're actually going to look at it in kind of a reverse order. We're going to start with this um, part in verse 42. But this chapter is so great because once again, Jesus' disciples are asking him if they can sit at the right and left hand of God. Which, I mean, is there a more bold like request for someone to, to make to Jesus than to sit at his left and right hands, right? And I love how Jesus answers his disciples by basically saying, you must be crazy. <laughs> you must be crazy to be asking this question because those spots are not only not mine to give up, but they are already reserved for other people. So, no. <laughs> no, you can't be at my right and left hand. He goes on to describe the nature of the world at, that, at his time, which I think incidentally mirrors exactly how our society, I think, works today. But look at what he says in Mark chapter 10, verses 42 through 45. He says, Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so, though, with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but, but to serve. He didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying that that question, can I sit at the right and left hand of God, is so backwards. It's so backwards. James and John apparently wanted to have the right and left seats by God so that they could somehow rule as co-leaders or something of the created world. But Jesus says that is how the rulers and people in the world look to rule. They want to rule from the top down. But he says in my kingdom, this new reality that is being ushered into existence in the midst of this already broken reality of, of the world is fundamentally about the posture of humility. The way of the servant. He says, even I, the Son of God, who actually was at the right hand of God, gave that up to be a servant for all. Let's jump back into Mark chapter 10. Let's look at verse 13 and following. Is that one in there? No? That's all right. I'll just read it to you guys. Just a, oh, there it is. Hey, just kidding. People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will not enter it. And he took the children in his arms, placed his hands on them, and blessed them. And this is the same story, just a little bit different from Mark's perspective. But this idea of laying on of hands was so important, especially for someone as religiously and spiritually significant as Jesus. 
I mean, even today, people like to have like their babies, um, ha- have like the Pope or somebody like that, like put their hands on them because there's, there's significance to that, right? And the disciples, they see this taking place and they immediately jump to action because in the disciples' minds, this was an interruption to this moment where Jesus is surrounded by this huge crowd of people and these people are asking him all sorts of important questions. Right? And the disciples are thinking, hmm, this is interrupting this more important process of Jesus answering these these adult people. See, I think... Um, the disciples' concern was that this inter- interruption would have been perceived by Jesus as wrong and a detriment to what he was there to achieve, which to disciples was to impart wisdom and teaching and knowledge, right? And this moment is so beautiful because Jesus has already said that the poor in spirit will enter the kingdom of heaven and that the meek are going to inherit the earth. And here comes the most innocent of all people, Right? These little children, their parents just longing for Jesus just to touch these kids. And Jesus sees and he hears what the disciples are doing, basically shaming the families for interrupting the more important work of Jesus. And Jesus says in annoyance, which that's what indignant means, he was super annoyed at them at this moment. He says, stop. Let these kids come to me because the most important thing in that moment was not for Jesus to have an uninterrupted time to answer questions, but rather to be present with a handful of children so that they could experience the closeness of his presence with them. That was what was most important. See, I think we so often see interruptions in our lives as rude or annoying and causing us to be unable to keep focused. And sometimes they are. (laughs) I want to be honest. Sometimes they are. But I think it's how we respond to the interruptions that's most important. Do we respond with this kind of authoritative demand for peace or do we respond in humility, receiving the interruption as a potential opportunity for nearness, for presence with someone? And again, of course, not all interruptions are meant as an opportunity to do what Jesus did in this moment. In fact, there are moments when Jesus' Jesus' intention and mission were interrupted and it caused him to rebuke the interruption, right? When he goes into the temple and he finds people using the place of worship as a market, he does what? He flips over the tables because he knows this is not what this place is for. It's an interruption for what this was intended to be, right? Right? But there is a level of humility and gentleness that it takes to respond to these kinds of moments the way that Jesus did. And Jesus' humility and gentleness ultimately moves him to a place of seeing people and then having compassion on them. That's what humility does. It gives us the, the, the chance to look someone in the eye and have compassion for where they are. What's so neat in this moment, Jesus showed his disciples what gentleness and humility and dependence look like all in one interaction with just these children. You know, I think one of the reasons that Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth is because humility actively seeks the peace and goodwill of others. Humility seeks peace out. Not necessarily because it avoids conflict or anything like that, but it seeks to bring about peace 
through lifting others up and bringing goodness to people. I've always heard people talk about humility as simply someone who is quiet, and that might be a portion of it. They're even-tempered. They're not given to being in front of a crowd or something like that. And I think that's partially true. But the more I look at the life of Jesus through the lens of humility, the more I see how active Jesus' humility truly was. Jesus gave up his position at the right hand of God to be a servant to all. Jesus allowed the interruptions of his teaching to spend time with children. Jesus' humility was what allowed him to constantly see the needs of the people around him. I mean, just think about the moment, think about this moment he's teaching in, in the person's house. Do you guys remember this story? He's teaching in his house, and the house is completely filled. And, and I just picture just like stuff starts falling, like little by little, and then all of a sudden the entire roof like caves in, and everyone's like, what the heck? And there's this like person just being lowered down. That's a weird story if you actually like flesh it out in your head. But Jesus accepts the interruption to that moment in humility because what he, need, what he knows that that person needed was his presence with him right in that moment. And he responds to it. If humility genuinely seeks the needs of the people around me as greater than my own, could you imagine the world that we would live in if humility was our first inclination rather than self-promotion? See, I don't think Jesus was necessarily saying that the meek and humble would literally inherit the earth, but that they would be so freed from the chains and pains that come along with living deeply into a self-aggrandizing, self-promoting world that would often lead to abuse and suffering and death. Humility is the beginning of being freed from those things. And when we are freed from them, we are free then to act in goodness on behalf of the people around us. Life with Jesus, guys, begins with an acknowledgement and a willingness to admit in humility of our own incompleteness without Jesus. That we need Jesus in order to be whole. And I believe it means that we approach then our schedules and lives with this broad sense of humility because when we do that, then every interruption along the way can be turned into an opportunity to discover how to be a person of presence with the people around us. Uh, Let's pray, um, and then I think we're going to enter into a time of something else happening. Communion, I believe, but let's pray. God, I just thank you so much for this, man, just the, your, your story, how you, how you share with us these amazing truths of your kingdom, and then you show us very tangibly and practically actually how to live those things out in the lives of the people around us, God. And I just am so, I don't know, I'm blown away by your humility. I'm blown away by your calling on your people to be people of humility. May we be those kinds of people who step back and seek the goodwill of others, who seek to see people for for who they are and have compassion on them the way you did, God. Humility is the beginning point of living out the way of Jesus in so many other places of our lives. I just pray that you would help us to have that, even though so much of ourselves desperately wants to have the opposite. God, may we live into that way of humility as your people in this world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.